Okay, very good. Well, let's get started. Welcome to Sunday School. We're moving along in our chronological study of the Bible and looking more at the life of Abraham. Last week, we talked about the separation of Abraham and Lot, or Abram as he was known at that time. This separation cleared the way for God's land promise to be given to Abram and Abram's seed. It also served as a demonstration, an opportunity to demonstrate Abram's generous, future-looking faith. We talked about that. We need that same kind of faith. Now, Lot, Abram's nephew, he ended up settling in the Jordan Valley, where Sodom and Gomorrah also were. Now, today we're going to jump forward a little bit in the Genesis narrative to finish off the history of these infamous cities, as well as the history of Lot. After today's lesson, we'll go back a little bit and resume the story of Abraham. Now, understand that this section here about Sodom and Gomorrah, this is not part of the Bible just giving arbitrary details about God judging certain ancient cities. No, this is very purposeful. The example of Sodom and Gomorrah is one to which the Old Testament and the New Testament is going to continually make reference. Even today, Sodom and Gomorrah are bywords. They're names that instantly bring to mind extreme perversion and God's severe judgment. The account of these cities, their doom, and Lot's rescue it was given for our instruction, even 2,000 plus years later. So let's be sure not to miss out on what God has for us from, the, from this passage. Here's our agenda for today's class. Looking mainly at Genesis 18 and 19. We're first going to look at Abraham's intercession for Sodom, and then we'll look at the account of Sodom's judgment, and we'll finish by comparing the situation of Sodom with our own situation today. Now, let's pray before we continue. Our great God, we ask you for your spirit to speak now. We want your word to find its way into our hearts to instruct us, to convict us, to rebuke us, to encourage us. Though this is a wonderful and sobering part of scriptures, I pray that you help me to be able to explain it, and I pray that people will be attentive and be thinking, thinking through it, Lord, and applying it to their lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, where exactly were Sodom and Gomorrah? Just bringing back the map I showed you last week. We don't know for sure where these cities were, but they were somewhere in the Jordan Valley around the Dead Sea. And you can see on the map there, the Dead Sea area, it's all deserty, it's all barren around it. That's because this is the section of the valley that was judged in, in the text that we're about to look at. Archaeologists have suggested two different sites for Sodom and Gomorrah. One is near the northeast section of the Dead Sea, and the other in the southeast section of the Dead Sea. Digs in these areas have yielded surprising amounts of ash layered in the soil and bits of pottery that were obviously affected by sudden and intense heat. Now, these findings were cons would be consistent with the fiery judgment that is described as coming upon Sodom and the other cities of the valley. We saw last time that as Lot separated from Abraham and moved into the valley and towards Sodom, that Sodom was a city notorious for its wickedness. 
the men, the people of Sodom, were great evildoers. Now let's turn to Genesis 18 and see how the judgment of Sodom begins. Now, just to get you up to speed with this section of scripture, we won't read the entire chapter. At this point, Abram's name has changed to Abraham, and the Lord has confirmed his promises to Abraham in various ways. In the beginning of chapter 18, the Lord himself visits Abraham with two angels, and they're described in the passage as appearing as men. God appears as a man. He eats a meal prepared by Abraham, the readily hospitable Abraham. And the two angels also appear as men. This provokes a certain question. How can God, who is spirit, who says no one can see my face and live, how can he appear as a man to Abraham and even eat something from Abraham? He must have had real flesh and bone to do this. This is an example of what theologians call a theophany. Genesis 18 here, we have a theophany or an appearance of God on earth in a tangible form. Many interpreters also consider this an example of Christophany. It's the same idea. Christophany is an appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ. The second person of the Trinity appears in tangible, even visible form. There's actually a good argument to, for treating all appearances of God tangible appearances of God in the Old Testament as Christophanies, that this is the Son of God. Now, why is that? Well, because of the Son of God's role. We hear in the New Testament quite clearly that the Son, even though God is one God, he exists in three persons, it is the Son who is the mediator between God and man. And specifically, John 1.18 says, it is the Son's role to explain the Father. No one can see God at any time but the the only begotten who is in the bosom of the Father, he is the one who has explained him. So in Genesis 18, it is very likely that God, as he takes on a temporary but real human body, is the Son of God. And it is the Son of God who converses with Abraham. And that's just a little side note. So then, as we read our passage, know that the Son of God Likely the son of God has appeared to Abraham. He's told Abraham that Abraham will have a son by this time next year. And then he says he's going to tell Abraham what he's about to do concerning Sodom and Gomorrah. And that's what we're going to pick up reading the text. Look at Genesis 18, starting in verse 16, and we'll read down to verse 33. Here's what it says. Then the men rose up from there and looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham was walking with them to send them off. The Lord, that's Yahweh, Yahweh said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. For I have chosen him, so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of Yahweh by doing righteousness and justice, so that Yahweh may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. And Yahweh said, The outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, and their sin is exceedingly grave. I will go down now and see if they have done entirely according to its outcry, which has come to me. And if not, I will know. Then the men turned away from there and went towards Sodom. 
while Abraham was still standing before Yahweh. Abraham came near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you indeed sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? So Yahweh said, If I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, and I will spare the whole place on their account. And Abraham replied, Now behold, I venture to speak to the Lord, although I am but dust and ashes. Suppose the fifty are lacking five. Will you destroy the whole city because of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. He spoke to him yet again and said, Suppose forty are found there. And he said, I will not do it on account of the forty. Then he said, Oh, may the Lord not be angry, and I shall speak. Suppose thirty are found there? And he said, I will not do it if I find thirty there. And he said, Now behold, I ventured to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty are found there. And he said, I will not destroy it on account of the twenty. Then he said, Oh, may the Lord not be angry, and I shall speak only this once. Suppose ten are found there. And he said, will not destroy it on account of the ten. As soon as he has finished speaking to Abraham, Yahweh departed, and Abraham returned to his place. Let's start our analysis of this passage with, as always, basic observations. As he's about to leave Abraham, our Lord says something curious. Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? It's a rhetorical question. God says, I'm not going to do that. And notice the reasoning. Notice the reasoning God mentions for not hiding his plan from Abraham. It's because God has chosen Abraham. God has chosen to bless Abraham. And God has chosen Abraham to walk in God's ways. Now, God says he's about to observe Sodom to see if the outcry of its sin is really accurate. And after hearing God's intention, notice the first question that Abraham asks. He says, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? But God did not say that he was going to judge Sodom. He said it was going to investigate Sodom. So based on Abraham's question, what has Abraham assumed? Yeah, <laughs> Abraham Abraham concludes or assumes, he says, when you investigate it, it's going to be judgment. Abraham already has a sense of how things are going to go. Now, when Abraham asks this question, he then presents to God a theoretical situation. He says, suppose there are 50 righteous people in Sodom. Will you destroy those 50 along with the wicked? Now, by asking this second question, Abraham makes an appeal to God's character, and specifically, he appeals to God's justice. Abraham says, God, you are just. You do not treat the righteous and the wicked the same. Surely you will not send calamity on the righteous as you do the wicked, will you? God replies, no, I won't. If there are 50 righteous within the city, I will not destroy the city at all. 
But Abraham doesn't stop there. He then asks about the same situation with slightly fewer amounts of people. He starts at 45, then 40, and goes all the way down to 10. Just 10. And asked if he will withhold judgment on the whole city for the sake of just 10 righteous people. What does God say? He says he will. And at this, Abraham says no more, and the Lord departs. Now, for these basic observations, let's consider some questions of interpretation. First, why does Abraham care what happens to Sodom if he knows it's such a wicked city? What do you think? Yeah, maybe he knows people there. In fact, we know he knows at least one person there. Who does he know that lives in Sodom? His nephew, Lot. Now, it may be that Abraham is merely speaking out of a sympathy for men in general, but certainly he has a special interest in Lot. He wants to see Lot protected and spared. And maybe even the rest of the people of Sodom, despite their wickedness. It feels a sympathy. We do know that Lot is at least part of his concern because at the end of the account of Sodom, in Genesis 19.29, we'll read this verse again later, but it says, Thus it came about, when God destroyed the cities of the valley, that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow, when he overthrew the cities in which Lot lived. So, so this is a poignant statement. Yeah, Genesis 19.29, God says he saves Lot because he remembered Abraham. It's because of this special favor that God has on Abraham, the special covenant even, that he listens to Abraham's intercession for the city of Sodom and even for Lot. Now, God says the reason he's going to visit Sodom is because he wants to see whether the outcry of the city is accurate. We know, though, that God is omniscient, and he needs not personally to visit anything to know it intimately. So then why does God want a personal assessment of Sodom? Why does he want to personally go down to the city? We know at least part of the answer is, is to accomplish a personal rescue for Lot. God does know about the city, but he's sovereignly intending to rescue Lot out of the city. But there's something else, and this is consistent with the concept of God testing people throughout the scriptures. It's not that God needs to know what's in that person's heart, but he's going to display what's in that person's heart for everyone else to see, even for the people themselves. This is true even when we are tempted or tested. It's not that God needs to see what's happening in our hearts and say, oh, that's what they were thinking. No, he knows, but he wants to show us what's in our heart, and he wants to show other people what's in our heart. And this is for bringing sinners to repentance but also for God glorifying himself by displaying true righteousness, the righteousness that he puts in people by faith. That's part of what God does in testing. And so it is with Sodom. With a personal visit, God is going to show everyone what he already knows, what Sodom is really like. Now, Abraham asserts that God does not treat the righteous and the wicked completely alike. Is this true? Well, yes, yes it is. God does treat the righteous and the wicked differently. 
And remember, this is one of the central issues in the book of Job. In Job, the question is, is God really just? Does he make no distinctions between the righteous and the wicked? And does he simply punish them all? Now, it is true that God does many things the same for the righteous and the wicked. It's true both the righteous and the wicked will experience hardships and trials in this world. But it's also true that they'll experience good things and even God's provision in this world. Nevertheless, God does not treat the righteous and the wicked completely the same. And as Proverbs says, God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. There's very different stances against the righteous and the wicked. Now, we may not always see how God is rewarding or being good to the righteous or how God is opposing and confounding the wicked, but we know that he is. And this is one of the lessons of which Job himself was reminded. And the principle is even clearer, though, when it comes to the judgment of God. Abraham asserts it would be contrary to the character of God to sweep away the righteous along with the wicked in judgment. And where else in the Bible do we see examples of God sparing the righteous, protecting the righteous in judgment while judging the wicked? Can you think of another example? All right, so I heard Exodus. So the plagues of Egypt, that might be a reference to the plagues of Egypt. God protects Israel, but he brings the plague on the Egyptians. Or the flood is another great example. God protects righteous Noah and his family, but he destroys the rest of the wicked world. And we could point to many other instances of the Bible. Rahab in Jericho, she and her family are protected. The rest of the city is destroyed. Or when the spies go into the land of Canaan and they bring back a bad report, those spies are killed, except for Caleb and Joshua, because they brought back a righteous report. And they were not judged along with wicked Israel who refused to enter the promised land. Say the same thing for some of the prophets when Babylon conquered Judah. They were protected even though much of Judah was being massacred and enslaved. Even in the New Testament, we have the parable of the wheat and the tares given by Jesus. He says, don't try and uproot the tares now because you might uproot, you might uproot the wheat by mistake. He says, wait till the end. Well, I'll gather my wheat into my barn, and then I'll gather up the tares, and they'll be destroyed. And of course, even in the last days of the earth, the tribulation period, God makes a distinction. Revelation 3.10, God tells, Jesus Christ tells the church of Philadelphia, because you have been faithful, I will spare you from the hour of trial, which is the coming upon the whole earth. This is one of the reasons why we believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. God says, you're not going through the judgment. You're not going to see that hour. I will protect you. I will even rescue you. And this is, this is simply the character of God. This is who he is. Indeed, it is as Abram says, far be it from God to sweep away the righteous with the wicked in judgment. He's too good for that. And aren't you glad? Aren't you glad that God is that way? Consider what Peter writes in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 10. I want to actually read this to you. 2 Peter 2, verses 4 to 10 is a very relevant section because it speaks both of God's judgment on evildoers and God's rescue of the righteous, and it even mentions Sodom. Here's what it says, 2 Peter 2, verses 4 to 10. 
For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. And I believe that's a reference, by the way, to the, the sons of God in Genesis 6 who transgressed their proper boundaries. But here, back in verse 5, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example of those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. And if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. God does make a distinction between the righteous and the wicked, especially in judgment. He judges the wicked, but he rescues the righteous. But someone might say, hey, wait a second. What about, what about those Christians who die right alongside with unbelievers in natural disasters or various tragedies? In a mass shooting, there are Christians who die too. Did God treat them the same there? Didn't he allow both to perish in judgment there? We need to understand a few things in answering that question. Understand that I'm not saying that God never allows harm or hardship to come to believers. No, we've already noted that he does. And he does for good and exalted purposes. However, we must also understand that we cannot say what is and what is not, specifically, a judgment of God against sin, unless God tells us. You know, I often say in this class, but I need to repeat it. God does not communicate his approval or disapproval at all through circumstances. God communicates his approval or disapproval in only one way, and that's the scriptures. We cannot say exactly what God is doing in a particular situation. We know that God is being good, we know that God is being wise, but is a particular act a judgment, or is it just a trial for some of his believers? Is it a judgment for some evildoers and a trial for and a refining for God's people. If scripture identifies something as a specific judgment for sin, well, then we can be sure that in that judgment, God will be careful not to sweep the righteous away along with the wicked. But for the things that we experience and the things that happen in our world, we can't say for sure what God is doing. We know that sin has consequences. We know we lived in a cursed world, but we don't know what specifically is the judgment of God or how he's working it out. So it is still true. God does not treat the righteous and the wicked alike. Now back to Genesis 18. We see a, a very drawn out request from Abraham to God. And our writer, Moses, has seen fit to give us the whole thing. Verse 50, then 45, then 40, then all the way down. We might think actually reading through this passage that it's almost a little comical. You know, Abraham is like, oh, you know, I'm sorry, I don't want to say anymore, but what about this? Maybe it's a little bit tedious. You might wonder, Moses, why don't you just skip to the end? Why don't you just give us the last part of their conversation and have Abraham ask God, will he spare for the sake of just 10? 
It's not the way God wanted it recorded. He wanted us to see each step of the intercession. 50, 45, 40, 30, 20, 10. And why? Why give us the whole thing? I think it's for a specific reason. Consider these cities. According to estimates from secular historians and archaeologists on city sizes around 2000 BC, and this episode probably takes place around 1900 BC or so, cities at this time are thought to range between 10,000 to 65,000 people, depending on the location. So Sodom, Gomorrah, these cities will estimate that they have at least 10,000 people, probably more. Now, what does it say about such a city, if that city contains only 50 righteous people, not 50 people who claim to be worshipers of the true God, but 50 people who actually love and obey God. In a city of 10,000, 30,000, 60,000, what does it say about that city if there are only 50 righteous? Well, does it not say that it is a thoroughly corrupt city, that it is so apostate, so evil, just 50 out of these thousands? But what does it say about God, however, if he chooses to spare such a city, everyone in the city, for just those 50 righteous? It shows that God is extremely merciful. Thousands of evildoers, their outcries reaching heaven, but there are 50 righteous. So I won't judge, I won't send any judgment on them. That shows the great mercy of God. But what if you drop that number by five? How does the city seem if it only has 45 people, 45 righteous people compared to when it had 50? Well, it's even more wicked of a city. You mean you don't even have 50? You have only 45? But again, if God spares such a city, it shows him again to be even more merciful. And the same thing with 40. And the same thing with 30. And the same way all the way down to each number. With each new threshold, as it's reported to us in the narrative, the character of Sodom appears darker and darker. But because God promises that even for those low amounts of people, of righteous people, he will still spare the city, his mercy and his righteousness appears brighter and brighter. And by the time we get to 10, we should be beside ourselves at the climactic mercy of God in the face of utter wickedness. Ten righteous people, just ten, in the midst of thousands, 10,000 to 65,000? God says, even for such a small, small number, I will spare the whole city. That is mercy. That is patience. That is the compassion of God. Do not believe for a second that the God of the Old Testament is only angry and wrathful. God of the Old Testament is the same as the God of the New Testament. And what kind of God is he? He's a God of great mercy, great patience, great compassion. Though he is also a God of great holiness and justice. Now let's see what is the result of God's personal investigation of the city. Interestingly, the Son of God himself does not bodily enter the city, but the other two men, the angels, do. Let's read what happens. Genesis 19 verses 1 to 29. Long section, so follow along with me. 
starting in verse 1, Genesis 19. Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening, as Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them, and bowed down with his face to the ground. And he said, Now behold, my lords, please turn aside into your servant's house, and spend the night, and wash your feet, and you may rise early and go on your way. They said, however, No, but we shall spend the night in the square. Yet he urged them strongly, and so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he prepared a feast for them, and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, surrounded the house, both young and old, all the people from every quarter. And they called to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us, that we may have relations with them. But Lot went out to them at the doorway and shut the door behind him. And he said, Please, my brothers, do not act wickedly. Now behold, I have two daughters who have not had relations with man. Please let me bring them out to you and do to them whatever you like. Only do nothing to these men inasmuch as they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, Stand aside. Furthermore, they said, This one came in as an alien, and already he's acting like a judge. Now we will treat you worse than them. So they pressed hard against Lot and came near to break the door. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. They struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they wearied themselves trying to find the doorway. Then the two men said to Lot, Whom else have you here? A son-in-law and your sons and your daughters and whomever you have in the city, bring them out of the place. For we are about to destroy this place because their outcry has become so great before Yahweh that Yahweh has sent us to destroy it. Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who were to marry his daughters and said, Up, get out of this place, for Yahweh will destroy the city. But he appeared to his sons-in-law to be jesting. When morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he hesitated. So the men seized his hand, and the hand of his wife, and the hands of his two daughters. For the compassion of Yahweh was upon him. And they brought him out and put him outside the city. When they brought him outside, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look behind you, and do not stay anywhere in the valley. Escape to the mountains, or you will be swept away. But Lot said to them, Oh, no, my lords. Now behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have magnified your loving kindness, which you have shown me by saving my life. But I cannot escape to the mountains, for the disaster will overtake me, and I will die. Now behold, this town is near enough to flee to, and it is small. Please let me escape there. Is it not small? That my life may be saved. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this request also, not to overthrow the town of which you have spoken. Hurry, escape there, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. Therefore, the name of that town was called Zoar. The sun had risen over the earth 
when Lot came to Zoar. Then Yahweh rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from Yahweh out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But his wife from behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Now Abraham arose early in the morning and went to the place where he had stood before Yahweh. He looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he saw and behold, the smoke of the land ascended like the smoke of a furnace. Thus it came about when God destroyed the cities of the valley that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot lived. Just amazing, an amazing event in history, an amazing record of it. Because it's a longer section, we only have an ability to overview what we see here. But consider the details of this account that show the pervasive wickedness of Sodom, the great evil of this place. The men of the city, all of the men, they were adulterous. They were lusting instead of being faithful to their wives and God's design. They also desired to commit homosexual acts. They desired to rape the angels. They resented being rebuked by Lot. They threatened Lot with even worse treatment than that what they had planned for the angels. And this is the whole city. The whole city is represented in this mob of sinful men surrounding Lot's house. There are men from every section of the city, every age group, every social station, and they make these perverse demands together. Even when struck blind, the men of the city weary themselves, still trying to find a way into Lot's house. This is how wicked the place is. Even Lot's sons-in-law, when warned of judgment, they don't leave. They don't believe or flee the city. But this is a thoroughly wicked place. The outcry of sin, all the evil, all the hurt, all the blasphemy that was reported to God is shown right here to be true. So we see those details, but notice also, consider also the great and overwhelming mercy of God to Lot. The angels rescue Lot. Lot tries to protect them. He's about to be overtaken by the mob, but the angels rescue Lot and bring him inside the house. And they struck the mob with blindness. Angels warn Lot of the coming judgment, and they, they urge Lot to find all his relatives and get them out of the city. And then they urge Lot again to leave the city when morning comes. But I think most significantly, when Lot hesitates, he knows he should leave, but for some reason he just can't do it. The angels themselves grab Lot, grab his wife and the hands of his daughters, and they lead them outside the city themselves. And verse 16 says why specifically. It's because the compassion of Yahweh was upon them, upon Lot. God loved Lot. And the angels saved Lot's life, even from his own weakness. Angels warned Lot and his family a third time to flee and to not even look back. 
and they grant Lot's request to flee to a small town and not even go all the way to the mountains. There is indeed great compassion from God through the angels to Lot and to his family through him. So then, how many righteous people turn out to be in the whole city of Sodom? City of thousands of people, surely. How many righteous? One. I'd say just one. The only person who demonstrates any righteousness in this account is Lot. Lot provides protection and hospitality for the angels, which was a big deal back then. We're not as big on hospitality today, even though that is still something commanded of believers. But it was even much greater deal back then. In fact, the beginning of this account, which describes his showing hospitality to the angels so readily, is exactly like what Abraham does in the previous chapter for Yahweh himself and the two angels. Lot also rebukes the men of the city for their wickedness. He sought to save his son-in-law's lives. He does demonstrate righteousness, but he's not perfect. And I think there's one obvious detail in this that shows that Lot greatly stumbles and that one of the ways he wants to protect the angels is by offering his own daughters to be sexually used by the wicked men of the city. Uh, that's unthinkable. So he, he was weak in, in doing that. And also, he was weak and lingering in Sodom. Nevertheless, he was righteous. In the New Testament, as we already saw in 2 Peter, it calls him a righteous man. Lot was a true believer in Yahweh. And for that reason, God was going to protect him. Lot's wife gets no such commendation. Rather, she looks back towards Sodom and she becomes a pillar of salt. And Lot's daughters also get no commendation. And in the latter part of chapter 19, a section we didn't read, his daughters essentially, Lot's daughters essentially rape him. Now, maybe they're true followers of Yahweh too, and they were just really perverted in their thinking and, and making a mistake in this sinful way. But the only person who shows any righteousness is Lot, and it's for Lot's sake that his family is spared. So what's the final assessment of the city of Sodom? It was more wicked than it could have possibly been imagined. The behavior of the city, the behavior of the men of the city was beyond depraved, and that's only indicative of their whole families. There's only one righteous person in the entire city. And so even though God is merciful, he could not spare. He could not spare the city of Saul or the surrounding cities that were just as wicked. God had to be faithful to his own self not to judge the righteous along with the wicked, so he rescued Lot, but he had to destroy Sodom. It was too evil to let that evil go unpunished. It had to be dealt with. That outcry had to be answered. Now, some may object that what God does with Sodom and Gomorrah is cruel. He destroyed not just these cities, but all the cities of the valley. He obliterated them with fire. And some say this is inconsistent with a God of love, a God of goodness. He would never punish anyone with death or hell. Why would a good God ever do that? But hopefully you already see the answer to that. We've considered it before in class. Why must God even obliterate these cities with fire? It's not because he's compassionless. It's not because he's evil or cruel. It's actually because he's compassionate. It's because he's good. It's because he's just. God is too good 
to let rampant wickedness go. Believe it, brothers and sisters, that the great heart of God is grieved by sin. Yes, actually grieved. We saw this in Genesis 6, 6, right? God saw the wickedness of man and he regretted making it. And it says he was grieved in his heart. I do not believe that that is just a mere figure, that, that God doesn't actually experience any emotions. No, God is perfectly contented in himself. God is perfectly happy in himself. He is God. He's totally satisfied himself. And yet, in his great goodness, he allows himself to experience suffering and pain over sin. And are we not urged, even as Christians, not to grieve God? Ephesians 4.30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. It injures the great heart of God to see men and women harming one another in all the ways that sin harms. God is grieved, even pained by sin, even our sin. For God then to sit idly by and do nothing in the face of such evil and harm and injustice would be extremely unloving of God. It would show that he's not good. He's just a God who winks at sin. And after all, he's the judge of the universe. That's what Abraham says, right? Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? What judge will retain any sense of honor if when confronted with evil, confronted with great crimes, he gives an inadequate sentence of punishment? Or he gives no punishment at all. I mean, if human judges judge unjustly, what do we do with them? We remove them. Or we even send them to prison. How much more God, the perfect judge? It is because God is good that he must judge evil. Now, a few final points as we think more about application for ourselves today. Pardon me one second. How do we compare to Sodom? Are we better? Or are we just as bad? You might say, well, I've never tried to rape anybody. I never tried to commit homosexual acts. I must be better, right? Well, before we can answer that question, let's ask another. Are some sins worse than others? Or are all sins the same before God? The answer to this question is yes. Of course, don't be confused, brothers and sisters. These are both true. On the one hand, not all sins are the same in God's sight. And this should be obvious if we just look at the Old Testament law. According to the law given to Israel through Moses, some transgressions required reparations or sacrifices to restore the offending individual. For example, if you stole something, you were to pay back double. But other sins required death as punishment. You commit adultery, penalty is death. You disobey or you rebel against your parents, according to Mosaic law, the penalty is death. That's not the same for every law. 
This can only be because in some sense, certain sins are worse before God than others. And Jesus says something similar in the New Testament. In Luke chapter 12, verses 47 to 48, Luke 12, verses 47 to 48, Jesus says this, And that slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accord with his will will receive many lashes. But the one who did not know it and committed deeds worthy of a flogging will receive but few. From everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And to whom they entrusted much, of him they will ask all the more. Sins do indeed differ in sinfulness. Rape is worse than lust. Sex with an animal is worse than heterosexual sex before marriage. Sacrificing your children to Molech is worse than disciplining them in anger. Hearing God's word and then disobeying is worse than disobeying without hearing God's word at all. Now, I don't think we can come up with a precise hierarchy of the severity of sins, but some sins, let's face it, are worse than others. But that's on one side. On the other hand, as we think that lesser sins, what we might think of as respectable sins, as we think that they are not a big deal to God and they're not important for us to repent of, it is also true that in another sense, all sins are the same in God's sight. All sins are a statement that God is not worthy of worship. God is not worthy of your entire devotion. He is not the greatest treasure. And thus all sins, no matter how small, they are idolatry. All sins then cause us to fall short of God's standard of perfection. All sins make us lawbreakers. All sins carry the same penalty, eternal death and hell. Gossiping about your boss, it will send you to eternal torment just as much as murder will. Complaining about your children, it merits hellfire just as much as incest does. Living materialistically without any thought for God, will condemn you just as much as dedicating your life to blaspheming God and destroying his church. James 2.10 says, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. All sin is serious before God. All sin must be repented of, whether it's a sin that's overlooked by society or condemned by society. Any sin will kill your soul unless it has already been paid for by Jesus Christ on the cross. Now these two principles, not all sins are the same and sins are the same, they don't really contradict one another, actually complement one another. Some sins are worse than others, though all sins are an infinite affront to God. So therefore, while the sentence of any sin is hell forever, eternal torment and fire forever, that is the just penalty for sin. The severity of the suffering that is in hell, it will depend on the kind, quantity, and conditions of those sins committed. By the way, the believer's reward works the same way, doesn't it? The reward for every believer is being with Christ forever in heaven and his eternal state. 
And yet we know at the same time that believers will experience greater or lesser rewards in some sense based on how they live before God on the earth. In one sense, every believer gets the same thing. In another sense, believers get rewards based on their faithfulness. So it is with God's judgment. So back to our original question. How do we compare to Sodom? Personally, communally, nationally? Considering what we just discussed, in one sense we know we are the same as Sodom. We are just as much lawbreakers as they were, and we deserve the same judgment. It's only by God's mercy in saving us and calling us out from the city of destruction, as John Bunyan terms it in his Pilgrim's Progress, that we have hope. God rescued us. And speaking of God's grace, undeserved favor and salvation, Paul, in the book of Romans, he quotes Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 1, verses 9 to 10, which reads, Unless Yahweh of hosts had left us a few survivors, we would be like Sodom. We would be like Gomorrah. Unless God, all by himself, intervened and chose to reveal himself to you, to bless you, to love you, to care for you, what would be your fate? You'd perish just like the people of Sodom did. So if you're in Christ, be glad that you have such a kind God that in grace has made you an heir of the covenant of Abraham. On the other hand, our sin is different from Sodom. In one sense we're the same, but in another sense we're different. Perhaps someone might argue we're not as sinful, but actually... I think we're more sinful, at least in America. Why do I say that? It's hard to imagine a place that's more wicked than Sodom. I mean, considering what we read here, that is perverse, and that is universal in that city. And yet, listen to what God says to Israel through the prophet Jeremiah in Lamentations 4, verse 6. Lamentations 4, 6, Jeremiah, God speaking through Jeremiah, says, for the iniquity of the daughter of my people is greater than the sin of Sodom. God said this about his own people. How could Israel be worse than Sodom? Are you saying Israel committed greater perversions than Sodom did? Well, for sure, great abominations did, play, did take place in Israel. But I think the real reason is this. God's special people chosen by God, likened as a bride to God, they themselves turned against God and adulterated themselves with idols. The Israelites had been given so much goodness from God, so their rejection of God was all the more heinous. And this is why Israel was worse than Sodom. And Jesus says the same thing in the New Testament. Jesus speaks about his hometown of Capernaum. Matthew 11, verse 23, Jesus stayed in Nazareth and also Capernaum. And Capernaum, he was there a lot. But listen to what he says about that city. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades, that is the grave. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. What? 
this hometown of Jesus, a place in which he ministered, in which he did many miracles, he says it's even worse than Sodom? How is that? How can that be? It's because the kingdom of God had so obviously appeared among them, the light of God had shown so obviously and directly to them through Jesus, and yet they despised him, considered him of no account, and didn't want him. Consider your own situation, or consider our situation in America. How many blessings we enjoy from God in this country. How prevalent, how available the gospel is in our country. And yet, how great is our rebellion and perversion in this country? How greatly sin is celebrated and even protected in our country? Are we not worse than Sodom? But examine yourselves personally, too. How much generosity has God shown you, yourself, in your life? He has given you friends. He's given you comfort. He's given you some measure of health and many other gifts. How often has God made his word available to you? How often has God not brought upon you the consequences that your sin deserves? In shame and in suffering? But how have you reacted to that grace? In spite of God's kindness, do you still refuse to repent of certain sins? Do you still think certain sins to be too insignificant in God's sight for you to really do anything about them? Do you still prefer, in the face of God's kindness, the things of the world over God himself? Do you really just pay no attention to God? It is true what Hebrews 2, 3 says. Hebrews 2, 3. How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? We have been given more, so God requires of us more. Because otherwise we are worse than Sodom. God is too good and too just to not justly judge sin, especially the vast wickedness of continuing to rebel against God when he's given you, made clear to you, the sweetness of his own son, Jesus Christ. Now, if you adore Jesus Christ this morning, then rejoice. Rejoice because God has rescued you. God himself has rescued you from Sodom, just like he did Lot. You know, I'm just so drawn to that, that one image in the narrative of the angels grabbing Lot by the hand and pulling him out of the city. Because that's what God's done for each one of us, is it not? For those who are in Christ, God has led you by the hand out of the city of ruin and destruction. Because if he didn't, he wouldn't have left. He would have hesitated just like Lot. And he would have stayed So do you love your saving God? Do you love him enough to give up all for him? Do you love him enough to obey him? Do you love him enough to love others? To forgive them? To serve them? To show them mercy? God is your merciful Savior, and he's called you to show mercy to others.
So let's do that. Questions about what you've heard today? Yes, Rob. Hmm. Hmm. Great question, Rob. Are there different parts of the lake of fire, different parts of hell? How exactly are the different levels of suffering accomplished? I don't know. I was not very clear about that. This is just one of those mysterious truths that we know in part, but we don't know fully. I think the Bible is clear that there are different levels of suffering that will be given to sinners. But how exactly that's accomplished, I don't know. I don't know if it's different sections of hell or what what it is. But we know it's true. Roy, I think I saw your hand. Sure. Right. Yeah, those are those are great comments, Roy. Uh, I know we're running short on time. I'll just say a couple of things briefly. You mentioned the corrupting influence. We see the corrupting influence of a place like Sodom on Lot. And I think that is true to some extent. 
I mean, his situation was a little bit different. Uh, it's not like the, the church or Israel existed at that time. But yeah, you do see that he was, in some senses, buying into what was around him. Now, we live in a, in a world that's very much like Sodom. And we are not commanded to withdraw from the world. 1 Corinthians 5, <laughs> I didn't say that you had to withdraw from those who are idolatrous or immoral, because then you'd have to leave the world, Paul says. But he says, don't fellowship with a brother who, who continues in that, that lifestyle. But I think you're right, Boyd. This is one of the reasons why we must take advantage of the church to do as Hebrews 10 says, encourage one another uh, as we see the day of Christ drawing near. And to mention also the great, the great blessings we've been given today that our society has and that even we have as Christians and how there's so much wickedness despite all those blessings. You know, this. some of my professors have said at seminary, this is, in terms of studying the Bible, this is like the best era ever. We have so many resources that people in the past did not have. But have we taken advantage of that? Is our, is our walk with God not any better because of it? In fact, do we just take it for granted for those, take those things for granted? I appreciate those comments and I appreciate, appreciate you all being with me in Sunday school today. That's it for this week. We're done with Sodom and Gomorrah. We're done with Lot. Next time, we're going to go back a little bit in Genesis, back to Abraham. And we're going to go investigate Genesis 15 and 16, where we see the ratification, the formal ratification of God's covenant with Abraham in a very surprising way. So I look forward to talking about that with you next time. Let's close in prayer. God, I thank you for this word. It is a sobering word. But God, when we think about what you've done for us in rescuing us, it is a wonderful, it is a wonderful, hope-giving word. Lord, I pray that there are any, any at Calvary, any listening today, God, who are still stuck in the city of Sodom and have not yet left, who are hesitating, I pray, God, that you would bring them out. I pray, God, that they would no longer believe in the deceitfulness of sin, but escape for their lives and not even look back, God. But forgive us for where we, at times, do as Lot's wife does and look back and say, oh, should I really have left that behind? Oh, God, there's nothing for us in the city of Sodom. But there's such great blessings in your way. Lord, protect, grow, bless your people. In Jesus' name, amen.